Smartcast. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement. Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity of introducing special guest Alan J. Alonzo Wind to the show today. Alan is a retired senior foreign service officer from the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. Having worked on and off with the agency primarily overseas on diplomatic assignments from 1990 to 1992 and 1999 to 2019 in Peru, Nicaragua, Angola, Nigeria, Iraq, Afghanistan, South Africa, and the South Africa USAID regional missions. He provided oversight to the U.S. government, foreign aid development and humanitarian assistance, and supported U.S. ambassadors as their senior development officer on multiple U.S. embassy country teams. In South Africa, Allen helped establish the South African Regional Leadership Center as part of President Obama's Young African Leadership Initiative and contributed to other youth development efforts and business incubators. He previously worked as a global program coordinator for the International Save the Children Alliance Secretariat and as a country director and health sector coordinator for different nonprofit private voluntary organizations, including CARE and Plan International in a range of countries, including Ecuador, Bolivia, the Dominican Republic, and the United Kingdom. Allen began his career as a rural public health U.S. Peace Corps volunteer in Ecuador from 1980 to 1982, where he was widely known as Dr. Alonzo. The Alonzo nickname stuck throughout life in many countries like Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Allen graduated from the University of Chicago. He's originally a New Yorker and a high schooler, and was known as a subway rat attending the famous Stuyvesant High School in Manhattan. There, he studied creative writing for two years with his teacher, the famous Irish-American writer and raconteur Frank McCourt. He has always been an avid science fiction fan and sometimes avid writer and notes that writing has helped him creatively in other ways, and it was invaluable for his government, future government work. We're going to discuss Alan's book today, Andy and Adventures, An Unexpected Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Discovery Across Three Countries. It's a bestseller on Amazon and is available in paperback and ebook formats in Spanish translation and an upcoming audio version. It's with great pleasure that I welcome Alan Wynn to the show. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm honored to be able to be with you today. As I was saying before we started, the honor is all mine. I mean, this goes back to my early days studying at Georgetown and, and in law school when I had a chance to really delve into international law legal practice back then just studying it in, in courses and having a chance to to meet some authors back then when I was in my international law journal but having you on is is such a pleasure because we all connect with one another in certain ways and when I was looking at your bio I was like I it would be my honor to have you here because of your distinguished service and your background and before we you know before we get into the thick of your book 
I wanted to ask you about your early experiences in Brooklyn. You, in your book, you, you mentioned that uh, you were in the Van Dever project in Brooklyn. And I wanted to ask you, what was it about those early experiences that most impacted you on your journey today? Well, you know, on reflection today, I think uh, I'd have to say that um, really the, the segregation that uh, or resegregation that was happening in Brooklyn is something that uh, I have to comment on. Uh, Vandeveer in Brooklyn, in central Brooklyn, had originally been, of course, one of these post-war developments that tended to involve a lot of uh, white ethnic as well as Jewish uh, families. In fact, our upstairs neighbor, when I was uh, a small kid growing up, were a family of uh, refugees from uh, Nazi Germany, uh, survivors of the concentration camp. I still remember seeing the, the numbers stenciled, uh, tattooed on their arms. And uh, when we ended up leaving the Vandeveer, moving actually to a, a new developing area of Brooklyn called Georgetown, and ended up actually sharing a house with this uh, refugee family, the Finkelsteins. It was, a, in essence, an example of white flight. I mentioned in the book the fact that uh, in the kind of unconscious kind of uh, racism or slur of that time, my, my family and so many others were just eager to run away from the Schwarzes. You know, they, they wanted to live with other white people. Uh, and Georgetown, in fact, tended to be more of a Jewish slash Italian kind of neighborhood. You know, not unlike, you know, some of the neighborhoods that you end up seeing in, uh, you know, thinking of... Uh, Staying Alive and, uh, you know, other Travolta hits uh, from that time. Uh, my experiences ultimately going to uh, high school, you know, I went to a, Stuyvesant is one of the specialized high schools from across the metro area. So I didn't go to my neighborhood of high school, but it meant having to take a bus and a train almost an hour, uh, actually over an hour from the house to uh, um the Lower East Side, where Stuyvesant was located, and it meant traversing many of the then virtually burned-out neighborhoods of central Brooklyn and Queens. Of course, New York is different uh, today. It's gone through a renaissance, at least before the pandemic, those areas in Brooklyn and Queens. But the issues of uh, resegregation, uh, redlining, uh, are still kind of tangible issues that, that I think have to be faced in many urban centers. 100%. And when you reference that, I grew up in northern New Jersey, right outside of Manhattan. And my hometown, I'm Italian descent and Russian, but I remember my town being a, a little bubble, as you describe it. Uh, each town had their little bubbles. And it. I didn't realize any of that impact until many years later. But the fact that you reference that, I think so important to bring up because of what, where we are living in our time right now and, and what we're struggling as a society. To think that, this is stuff that's been irreconcilable. We have not been able to settle these issues as a society. And I guess from your vantage point, being overseas and seeing all these different countries and being able to compare those environments to the United States, I guess what I would ask you the follow-up question is, what do you think we can do to, to do away with those kind of things like redlining and resegregation and stuff like that? What do you think would help? Well, I, I would want to say that I'm still a glass half full kind of guy. Um, that was one of my other questions, actually. So I'm glad you bring that up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I definitely, undeniably, we've had so much progress, you know, in the intervening decades. There's still an awful lot to do. Um, there is still, uh, you know, even overseas, unfortunately, within our uh, historically within our embassies and, and missions, there's been at times a casual expression of of racism and marginalization that uh, you know is still noticed by members of different minorities. I remember actually an experience in uh, uh, I guess it was 2005, 2006 when uh, we were in Angola, and I made uh, kind of a casual comment uh, to some folks uh, about some joke, you know, about it being, oh, that's a real good example of black humor. And I didn't think that that 
meant anything. I mean, for me, saying that something was of black humor was akin to saying it's kind of a gallows humor, dark humor kind of thing. But uh, much to my shock and chagrin and, and humility, the deputy chief of mission called me in the next day to say that someone had complained, basically an African-American general services officer, uh, about this comment, uh, saying that it had offended him. And, you know, I explained my position, and and it was certainly understood. Um, the the guy uh, didn't want a direct apology or anything like that, but it was a reflection of the fact that all too often, you know, there are these things that we can say, we do, where we can still be unconscious about how it might offend others. You know, there's a back and forth these days, uh, sometimes it's being mocked a bit, uh, the idea, the concept of microaggressions. You know, there's a concern that it's a reflection of people being too caught up in the whole wokester phenomenon and all of that. And I'm not necessarily advocating that, but I do think uh, th this experience, that experience back then and, and many others, have helped me to increase my awareness and consciousness about uh, the potential impact, conscious or not, of uh, the things that I might say and do. And I've tried to let that flow into my experiences in lots of different countries. It's so interesting you raise that too. I, um, I can only point to a few times in my life where I've witnessed directly uh, colleagues or people I know that had made some comments that may not have, they may not have been aware that they made you know, and it's, it's the way I look at it is, is if you become aware of it and you look at it and then you realize it, then it helps to shape life perspective and it gives you guidance on, on our society, how to bridge, bridge gaps, right? What to do. 100%. And um, I, I, I want to ask you this. I know um, the Peace Corps was a big, big influence in your life. And one of the things that you bring up in your book is you reference JFK and you talk about his quote, ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. I think I said that right. You rephrase it and you say, ask not what your world can do for you, but what you can do for the, for your world. And I wanted to see if you could explain that to our audience and kind of just, you know, your philosophy behind that statement. Well, I think it reflects uh, an understanding that with the kind of problems that we face in the world today, you know, retreating to uh, a kind of raw nationalism um, is unhelpful. Uh, it's not the course that we need to follow if we're going to grapple with the increasingly global issues uh, around the world. You know, things like uh, basic public health, access to basic uh, nutrition, uh, access to basic education. These are things that have certainly improved over the last number of decades. Certainly since the time I was a Peace Corps volunteer, there's been a vast improvement in terms of infant mortality and child mortality around the world. But we're still missing the mark in terms of being able to ensure that uh, the most disadvantaged, the most marginalized uh, of many countries around the world are really getting access to the, the kind of uh, help that they need. And it's not just that. I mean, it requires an understanding certainly with uh, the pandemic, uh, that these things don't stop at our shore. We can't retreat into a narrow-minded nationalism about uh, protecting ourselves against uh, uh, wild uh, viruses that are come out of the animal kingdom and that end up uh, affecting humans and, and spreading disease uh, or worse uh, and think that somehow we'll be insulated from that unless we are actually proactive about trying to help prevent and deal with these things overseas. We need the international cooperation and we need to have diplomacy as one of our chief um, areas of trying to work with other countries. And I agree with you hundred percent. And if we didn't have nationalism, do you think our world would be able to work strongly together to address these issues much more comprehensively? Well, I think that there's probably uh, a tribalism on some sort almost baked into our DNA. I mean, I think it is certainly part of what we are. And, and the reference to the JFK quote and how I tried to flip it around is somehow uh, uh, an, uh, a minor effort on my part to try to say, okay, let's build on that. Let's uh, 
look to that need of of doing supporting an altruism among our group, but extend the border of our group outwards and recognize that while there are things that uh, require us to be particularly focused to meeting the needs of our family, our community, our clan, our city, our country, uh, there's so many problems in the world that really require a higher understanding and appreciation for the the needs, the better needs of the world. And, you know, given the crazy weather of the last few days on the Pacific uh, Northwest, uh, both in the U.S. and Canada and as well in the Northeast, uh, it's just another reminder of, uh, you know, the kind of challenge that climate change is going to is, is offering us right now, but is going to get worse and worse over the coming years and decades. My wife and I are, are really frightened for what this will mean for our daughter. Our daughter is uh, under 30 still, but uh, I shudder to think what the world will be like for her 30 years from now. It's terrifying to think about it, and that's why we need immediate action to work together to help combat global warming and climate change. I, I think even for me living in Florida, we're under increased threat of hurricanes and severe weather. And, and along the Gulf Coast, the activities, I mean, global on every level, you could, you could point to global warming and climate change to so many parts of our challenges coming up and, and just it's going to get worse and worse unless we really act, adequately address it 100%. You know, Jason, one, one thing that uh, I'm not sure I highlight adequately within the book um, perhaps as a casual mention of it, but um, even um, after my time in Peace Corps in Ecuador, some years later when I was in Bolivia, I was noticing and talking about with friends and colleagues uh, and with community members uh, in the Chaco, the southeastern portion of Bolivia bordering Paraguay and Argentina, the, the effects of climate change. Uh, people were noticing, people who had lived in this region for, for decades, that something was changing. Uh, the, the winds and the rains were not coming at the scheduled times. Uh, crop failures were increasingly something that they were having to deal with. Uh, the temperature was changing. It was, wasn't only an issue of it being super hot, although the temperature in this area of Bolivia, which is... Uh, uh, not affectionately known as the green hell of Bolivia, can get up to 47, 49 degrees Celsius. That's like 118, 120 degrees or so Fahrenheit. Uh, but it was also uh, an issue of unseasonable drops in temperature, where the indigenous and mestizo communities were often unprepared for dealing with these storms that would come up from northern Argentina, from the south, where the temperature would drop down into the 40s. Well, that doesn't seem that terrible, but when you're living a life and expecting the temperature to be in the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, and you certainly don't have access to, to any sort of uh, interior heating or air conditioning to deal with any kind of brusque extreme changes on either side of that, a sudden drop into the 40s and dampness can mean, uh, you know, terrible things for the health, uh, particularly of uh, small children and the elderly. I see people getting sick and dying from those kind of changes over time and, and resources being stretched. Uh, it's terrifying to think that, you know, we've got to do a lot to combat these things. Your, your role, and I want to get into your book, your role with the USAID, you were involved in helping different countries develop economically. Is that a good way of phrasing it from my recollection of, of what USAID does? That they, they work on programs to help in, you know, increase uh, economic growth for different countries involved? Absolutely. I mean, this is uh, the core mission of uh, USAID. Um, I think there's probably more humility to it now than there may have been uh, some decades ago in that in the end, I mean, I think there's a, a general recognition that USAID can't go in and develop any country. Ultimately, USAID has got to serve as a catalyzing force, a catalyst for building partnerships so that other countries uh, can develop and put into effect the plans that they have or that they should have for raising the 
the economic status and well-being of their own populations. And increasingly, in the last 20 years or so, that's also meant public-private partnerships, trying to harness the capabilities of the private sector. Uh, in some cases, that may mean multinationals, international companies, as I uh, experienced in a number of countries with extractive industries like um, Angola and Nigeria in uh, Africa, but also the, the local private sector, um, even the, the private sector on a small scale, trying to bring together all of the different, uh, what they call in, in Spanish, the fuerzas vivas. Uh, I never found a good uh, uh, English translation of that, but basically it means all of the elements of society to work together to, to help uh, communities to advance. Looking at your book, you reference the Peace Corps pretty heavily at the beginning, because I can see that as a very formative part of your, your development in terms of your foreign service career. And I want to ask you, what's the most challenging aspect of your time in the Peace Corps? And if you can point to an example, what has that taught you about who you are today? Well, I had uh, phenomenally great experiences in the Peace Corps, and uh, I will never be able to pay back the debt I feel that uh, I continue to have with what Peace Corps meant uh, to me in terms of helping to shape uh, and form the person that I am. And I mean that in the broadest sense, uh, in terms of also the people that I uh, lived and uh, worked with and served with and cried with and laughed with, uh, my fellow Peace Corps volunteers, as well as uh, the people in the uh, small communities and villages that took me in uh, and embraced me and uh, showed me, uh, you know, intimate portions of their lives. Um, it really helped open my own awareness. I had, uh, you know, uh, ex experiences of a transcendental nature that are too numerous to, to list on a, an opportunity like this as well as uh, some very sobering and dangerous experiences uh, from time to time. I was a little bit graphic in the book, in particular, in terms of uh, health issues that developed over time. Um, I was certainly not alone in that in terms of suffering a wide range of gastrointestinal illness. I was probably a little bit too graphic in terms of some of the experiences had, but it was probably true that many of uh, my fellow Peace Corps volunteers would suffer from amoebas and uh, giardia and all sorts of bacterial and viral infections, basically the same as, you know, the people that we were living with and trying to help. And, you know, that certainly is a, an eye-opener, was an eye-opener for me in terms of uh, not only what I had to deal with at the time, but what they were having to deal with every day of their lives. One of the most uh, painful experiences early on in my time as a Peace Corps volunteer was when uh, I was uh, with this host family, the Montes family. Uh, Don Guido, who was my host father, uh, was a remarkable character. He was, uh, on the face of it, the proprietor, the owner of a pharmacy, the Farmacia San Martin. But that only told part of it. Uh, he was actually uh, and it was an open secret, a curandero, basically, uh, essentially a witch doctor, you could say, in kind of a colloquial expression, or to put it a little bit more charitably, a traditional healer. And the poor, who couldn't afford to go to regular doctors, would always go to Dr. Guido, uh, you know, for help. And he often did help them. Uh, and in fact, he, he even had one or two doctors, uh, medical trained medical doctors, working for him to provide, I don't want to say a front, but certainly a facade of, of uh, official uh, approval to uh, the kind of practice that he had. But all too often, the, uh, the rural peasants didn't trust the regular doctors. They wanted Dr. Guido to help. And at times he couldn't. I remember a, a kid being brought in, uh, probably about seven or eight years old, uh, Dr. Guido uh, uh, assumed that we were dealing with a case of appendicitis with this kid who was brought in at 3 o'clock in the morning with uh, pains in his belly and the like and uh, proceeded to 
encouraged the family to rush him to the hospital in Quevedo. Uh, you know, I'm glad that he had taken that measure rather than trying uh, uh, too many of the different kind of home remedies that initially was his recourse. Uh, but, but I learned days later that this kid actually died in the hospital uh, because he was suffering from worms, lombrices, and his intestines, and, and I forgive me, audience, if, if this is too much for you, but his intestines literally exploded from within from being jam-packed from worms. You know, he had just picked up such a, a terrible case of worms that uh, it couldn't be contained. And there was nothing the doctors could do, at least within the level of their knowledge, to deal with it at that time. So that was a, a really humbling experience to me and a reminder of the kind of social realities we were facing there. Sounds so heartbreaking to hear that and to imagine that. And, and just for your recollection of that, I'm sure that that leaves you with certain feelings years later, just about how even though you can go overseas and do and make a difference and do a lot, there's certain things you can't make a difference with. The system still is what it is and it's got to catch up. And, you know, having traditional medicine and then having someone like Dr. Guido do what he does, it's trying to reconcile those two, right? The old and the new and, and coming up with a, an approach that could hopefully be effective in saving people's lives and keeping them healthy. And I guess that's part of the challenges when you're working in a country where you have a, a, a larger infrastructure that's many more years existing than us coming, you know, going there, USAID or any foreign service officer going to a country that has in place probably for millennia or hundreds of years, certain traditions and norms. And uh, how, how, how would you reconcile that from your perspective when you witnessed that or observed it? What did you think at the time? Well, I mean, one of the... Um the sobering reminders of that, uh, you know, you talk about uh, folks that are in the embassies and in the foreign service in different countries. Uh, one of the things that uh, I, as well as many returned Peace Corps volunteers go to, is uh, the sense that, you know, in order to be effective uh, in our uh, experience overseas, in our effort to help people, we have to really understand what they're going through. And one of the challenges, and I've saw this time and time again in so many of the countries that I served in, is how to make sure that those that are the, the poorest, the most marginalized, the ones that are really suffering, uh, actually have a voice that is heard by uh, the development agencies and the folks working in the embassies around the world. All too often, you know, it's frequently the elites, the uh, who kind of capture the attention of uh, uh, the foreign service officers, you know, on the cocktail circuit in national capitals. Uh, the, it's also the practical effect that where you have a kind of a, a security apparatus within U.S. embassies uh, that has become increasingly conservative and extremely careful at making sure that there's layer upon layer of protection separating embassies from the people uh, in different countries, you know, you have this kind of uh, fortress mentality for the embassies and a social situation where all too often many of the people working in these embassies and at times, you know, even USAID missions have few opportunities, if any, to really be able to talk with and engage directly with those that are the most marginalized. Uh, they can read reports, they can see photographs, they can see video perhaps from different uh, grantees and contractors who may be working on projects, but I think there's uh, nothing quite like the opportunity to really get out and spend time uh, with people who are facing really the most dire social circumstances. And that was a, a lesson that was brought home to me time and time again. Basically roll up your sleeve. Do what you're supposed to do. Roll up your sleeve and get out there. Don't hustle inside, you know, don't huddle inside an embassy under the protective walls of that embassy. You need to be out there. How else are we going to interact and, and do what you're supposed to do as a foreign that service officer? Really what it comes down to. And it was one of the reasons why after finishing Peace Corps, I wanted to also spend, uh, you know, several months 
uh, traveling around uh, the rest of South America, uh, sure, I wanted to see the sights. I wanted to see uh, lots of other countries. Uh, I wanted to, however, meet other people and and have a chance to talk with them and get to know something of, of the kind of lives that they were facing. And so when I traveled, I was often hitchhiking uh, in all sorts of crazy circumstances. I made my way actually all the way to the southern tip of South America, Usawaya in Tierra del Fuego, um, and, uh, you know, toyed with the idea of actually jumping onto an Argentine freighter that was going to Antarctica at that point. But uh, I desisted and ended up uh, heading back up north because I knew I had an opportunity to work again in Ecuador after my Peace Corps experience in other parts of the country and under other circumstances. I want to get into your book, Andean Adventures. I know it features your role in Ecuador, Bolivia, and Peru. And I wanted to ask you, out of those three countries, which of those countries left you with the greatest impact in terms of your viewpoints, uh, where you are today, looking at foreign service and your background and, and just experience, like which country really resonated with you and, and, and made basically, could you call a second home? Uh, well, that's a dangerous question, particularly in terms of my wife, if she hears that. She's originally from Peru, and I met her when uh, I was in Peru. Our daughter was born there. So she would tell me to tread very carefully in terms of saying, which country would I say is my favorite? But uh, And it's not a cop-out, but I'd have to say that each of those three meant so much to me and continue to mean a lot to me over the years. Ecuador is special because apart from, you know, brief trips into Canada and going into northern Mexico as part of Peace Corps training for a time. Ecuador was really the first country that I went overseas to and, and ended up living for any significant amount of time. It's like your first love. And, uh, you know, I, I continue to feel a tremendous tie and, and engagement with the people there. In fact, um, if you can believe it, the grandchildren of many of the people that I actually first lived with in uh, Buena Fe uh, of coastal Ecuador uh, reached out to me a number of years ago on Facebook and the like. And so I still have contact with them and still kind of know some of the gossip of what's going on in their villages and the like. It's rather remarkable what technology allows us these days. Bolivia was very important to me in so many ways as well. Uh, you know, spending uh, the time that I did in the in the Chaco, which was really one of the most isolated portions of the country that few of any foreigners ever get to under normal circumstances. It was also a, a training ground for me to come to begin to understand more about what USAID was about. Uh, I had a chance to kind of stretch my wings a little bit and take on responsibility for a, a growing development program that would end up uh, becoming five times larger than what it was. It was also the first opportunity for me to, to work with local people to actually build a local non-governmental organization that I'm proud to say is still thriving today, Esperanza Bolivia. It's standing entirely on its own accord. It gets very little U.S. money directly uh, from the, the U.S. headquarters. Uh, they raise their own money in terms of being able to support their activities. And then, of course, Peru... Uh, was amazing because at that time, Shining Path, Sendero Luminoso was going on. Uh, I hadn't originally planned on joining USAID as uh, an employee. A mentor of mine who was a USAID health officer in La Paz at the USAID mission, which was in fact providing us some money to complement our own resources across Bolivia, uh, encouraged me to think about it. After five years in Bolivia doing something new, he said, no, no, you should definitely join USAID. It will be a great way to learn the folk ways of the enemy. <laughs> and I really took that to heart. And uh, I went there at a dangerous time with car bombings and the like. But uh, it was a tremendously rich cultural experience. I was supporting uh, vaccination programs across the country and all manner of different uh, health uh, and uh, HIV AIDS initiatives at a time uh, when uh, things were uh, not as well known. I was working in, in, in Peru. I ended up being exposed really for the first time in my life with the social effects 
uh, of HIV AIDS on uh, commercial sex workers and on the, the homosexual community, which was extremely repressed, suppressed in Peru. Homosexuality was illegal at the time, um, but there was in fact an NGO, uh, Movimiento Homosexual de Lima, MOLE, that USAID, and I have to say this took some courage, uh, was supporting uh, on the sly through uh, an umbrella grant mechanism to try and give them a voice to address stigma on HIV-AIDS and provide services for people who were um, afflicted, as well as trying to prevent uh, HIV-AIDS. And we're talking about the early 90s, when this was still uh, on a very small scale around the world. So each th of the three countries really meant so much to me in so many ways, as do many of the other countries that we came to serve and live in. I could, I could understand that. And I'm looking at your distinguished career, and I, I have to say I am in awe from my vantage point because of my own personal goals. Like I, I mentioned to you before we got on the air that uh, when I first started out as a lawyer, I was very intrigued and in looking into being a, a foreign services officer. I bought the book to take the exam, and that was where I got to it. But to hear you, and they are truly adventures. And part of your book, you talk about how you were shot at, arrested, threatened with expulsion, as well as unpleasant, other unpleasant surprises along the way. And I wanted to see if you could kind of embellish on that a little bit for our audience to talk about these obstacles that you really did face, some of them life-threatening, because people don't really think of those things when they put on CNN, Fox, whatever it is, and see a, a short little meeting of a bunch of people at a conference in a room sitting across the table, exchanging pleasantries, and you see people typing or whatever they're doing. I mean, there's a, a real-life situation here you, you go through and i'd love to have you explain some of that to our audience and you know well um i won't get into all of the details because of the amount of time that we have but it, uh, i'll tell some anecdotes uh, that speak to that uh, in terms of uh, being shot at at least uh, the first time um while in ecuador i remember being out partying with uh, some of the the friends in the village that i was living in at that time buena fe and kind of making my way across the, the village, the central square, to return to my uh, flat where I was living in. It was probably about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, going across the central park, and I realized all of a sudden I heard out of this alcoholic fog at that time these sounds passing by my head. And I was wondering, what the WTF is going on? And... All of a sudden, it kind of broke through to my consciousness that those were bullets. And I crashed and hit the floor and, and looked up. And I realized that at one end of the park, uh, there were a bunch of drunken soldiers who had stumbled out of one bar. Uh, and at the other end of the park, there were a bunch of drunken, drunken police that had come out uh, of another different bar. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not unusual in Latin America, at least at that time, that the police and the military would be rivals of each other in terms of security forces. And they were just firing away at each other uh, blindly, uh, you know, at two, three o'clock in the morning. Luckily, uh, they were so uh, impaired by alcohol, uh, they uh, didn't hit anybody else. Uh, and I didn't get hit. Um, so I was... Uh, extremely lucky and able to crawl my way out of there uh, and then, uh, you know, scream at uh, some of the police uh, when I did get out of the park to, to snap out of whatever crap that they were doing. In terms of uh, being arrested, I mean, I can tell uh, one story where I was in a Peace Corps training, kind of a mid-corps, mid-service training outside of Quito. And I had a, a girlfriend at the time uh, who was an African-American woman, also a Peace Corps volunteer out of Chicago. Uh, and we were uh, dating with each other and having a bit of a uh, affectionate uh, relationship. And we had uh, jumped, uh, we we'd had left the training center early one morning and had gone to these thermal baths that were nearby uh, to be able to enjoy uh, swimming around. You know, at, uh, we're talking about... Uh, uh, about 2,000 uh, meters altitude, so it was a nice kind of brisk chill to the air with these thermal baths. 
and we were being affectionate to each other in the pool, uh, kind of sharing some casual kisses while we were there. There were a couple of other people in there. I saw this other, uh, an Ecuadorian couple that were in the pool on the other side. And then all of a sudden, uh, we're being called out by this uh, police officer, uh, this Andean-looking uh, uh, Indian looking uh, uh, cop who was saying, get out of the pool, get out of the pool. Um, I'm saying, what happened? What's going on? To make a long story short, the other couple that were there, in, uh, the Ecuadorian uh, male, was a colonel who had been offended by the idea of seeing a white guy with a black woman being arm in arm and public display of affections and all this kind of thing. He was very offended by that. Another example of a kind of casual racism that sometimes would exist and uh, used his authority to insist that we be arrested. And uh, we hadn't done anything. It's not like we had engaged in anything obscene or anything like that, but it was a trumped up thing that led us to being uh, taken off to the uh, Quito lockup, uh, and it took about 24 hours for the Peace Corps authorities and embassy authorities to be able to find uh, a judge to get us extracted out of there uh, and for them to recognize that we hadn't done anything. In the meantime, it was a sobering experience for me um, in the, the uh, man side of the jail because, uh, you know, here I was, I had been able to throw on, you know, some clothes instead of just a bathing suit that I'd been wearing in the, in the thermal baths. Uh, but I was wearing these kind of military-like cargo pants and uh, I forget what kind of t-shirt I was wearing, but I uh, was befriended by this uh, dark-skinned guy from uh, Esmeraldas in northern part of Ecuador who uh, realized I was American and all this, but he says, uh, these guys, you're going to have to be careful in here in the jail. You know, you don't know what happens. Uh, you know, the, best to let them think that you're a Colombian. They're going to hear that you're a foreigner from your accent and let them think that you're one of these Colombian rebels and all this so they don't mess with you. And in the in the middle of the night, you know, sleeping on, you know, just the the bare springs of a cot, you know, up this uh, kind of uh, bunk bed kind of thing with probably 20 or 30 others in the lockup, I, I heard a commotion with this someone who was trying to climb up on the kind of metal springs of the bed that we were at. And, uh, you know, I, there was a lot of commotion and all this. And uh, the guy from the bed below uh, actually had stuck a shiv into my hand to defend myself. And he'd gotten beat up himself a little bit in the face trying to fight off, you know, God knows what would have happened in terms of that experiences. So it was a sobering experience without getting into too much of the other details. Uh, it was interesting that uh, my friend uh, uh, Nancy, uh, on the woman's side of the lockup, had had a very supportive and friendly and nonviolent <laughs> thing where, you know, the other women in the, in the lockup had shared blankets and whatnot with her so she could be comfortable. So luckily... What a contrast, uh, huh? <laughs> exactly. exactly. And, and luckily, we, we didn't get thrown out of the country at that point, although the Peace Corps country director was pretty pissed with us uh, in terms of uh, uh, that kind of situation. I I can share another uh, uh, quick anecdote, if we have time, from Bolivia days, where I was actually running uh, with you know far more resources, this big uh, development project across uh, the Chaco of Bolivia, and I got contacted in a bar by this kind of military-looking guy who had a bad Spanish accent, who was clearly an American of some sort. And he says, uh, we want to get your help with something. We want, we want you to serve as our eyes and ears and all this. And I said, look, I'm not involved with the embassy. You know, I don't work for you guys. And I, I said, who do you work for anyway? And he wouldn't tell me. He was clearly some sort of espionage kind of character. He was asking things of me which were entirely inappropriate. It's not a matter of uh, an, another American not wanting to help someone else, but it would have tremendously compromised our presence in this part of Bolivia where people trusted us to be suddenly identified and associated with any sort of American espionage activity. Yeah. So I, I told the guy to basically F off and 
uh, ended up having to take certain measures in terms of making sure he was kind of kicked out of the area where he was trying to hang around and compromise some of the staff on my development project. Well, as it would turn out, a few days later, I get a, a telex from the USAID mission in La Paz telling me to get up to La Paz immediately. And we're talking about something that was probably close to a 24-hour trip. I had to take a, a train for 15 hours up to Santa Cruz and then fly to La Paz to find out from the uh, the same health officer who I mentioned before as having been a mentor of mine that uh, the U.S. ambassador was determined to kick me out of the country, give me the Braniff Award for interfering with American espionage activities. And he'd heard that I had beat up this American uh, military uh, lieutenant who had uh, been on important operations in the Chaco of Bolivia. I explained the situation to uh, Paul and to the USAID mission director that that wasn't the case, but that this was a, a situation where military intelligence was trying to take advantage of charitable organizations, humanitarian organizations, and interfere with our mission for what? Some sort of short-term purpose of collecting intel, which might permanently damage our mission and lead to us being expelled by the Bolivian government. Luckily, the USAID uh, mission director at that time and the health officer fully understood my position and um, went and tried to explain to the U.S. ambassador, I won't mention his name, just to say he had a known reputation at that point for being the drugs and thugs ambassador for being someone who was overly associated with different anti-narcotic, anti-extremist activities in a range of different countries. And he'd been trying to basically illegally, in fact, impose some of this on USAID projects. Um, and this is something that happens or could happen from time to time. And it's one of the reasons why both USAID and the Peace Corps emphasize a lot of times in their different uh, recruitment information whether or not people have had any past experience with intelligence activities. I mean, obviously, there's a need for intelligence, there's a need for military intelligence, but please don't use the cover of a journalist, don't use the cover of uh, an aid worker, as unfortunately has happened all too often, to then potentially put in danger an important uh, social activity that also is contributing to our safety and well-being. Think about your work that you do, that you have done when you were active, was to help forge alliances, forge relationships, develop long-standing situations. And having something like that happen with that experience that you just described could completely destroy all that in one person's misconduct. That's shocking to me to hear that. Like how fragile... Our, our diplomatic relationships are with other countries when you're in the trenches on the ground in the environment trying to make a difference and you're doing it successfully for many years through your established career and then you have some random person come to you who's not even sharing your focus has completely different points of view and it could completely derail everything that's terrifying to think that our entire system of relationships with other countries could be completely compromised like that I appreciate you sharing that on the show, to be honest with you. That, that's very... Sure. There were other experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan and Africa, and I hope to be able to share a number of them in subsequent volumes, uh, uh, African adventures and maybe Arab adventures that should be coming out uh, sometime, hopefully uh, this year and next. And that's just to make one uh, correction, by the way, on some point, maybe it's my fault for not including an update You'd mentioned that the audio version of Andean Adventures is upcoming. I'm happy to actually share that the audiobook was released uh, um, at the end of April. And so it's available now on Audible, as well as Amazon and iTunes. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I, I, actually, let's go to that for a second. Let me direct our audience to how they can reach out to you. Where would be the best way for our audience to find you? Well, one way to search would be on Amazon itself to just search for Andean Adventures under books or Kindle, and they'd be able to see uh, both the book, uh, the ebook, the paperback, as well as the audio version. Uh, they can also go to my website if they want to get some direct links. My website is uh, https enableenoble.net. 
That's E-N-A-B-L-E-E-N-N-O-B-L-E dot net. And uh, there I've got uh, links for the books, um, as well as for one of the first science fiction stories that I sold uh, when I was a high schooler in New York, um, as well as uh, people can uh, read my blog or sign up for my newsletter. I try to put out a monthly newsletter sharing updates. That's great. I want to ask you this because my show is based on spirituality. And I know that one of the things you mentioned in your book or just in general is finding spiritual answers in the Andes mountains. And I wanted to see if you could share some of those with us as part of the ending part of our interview. Uh, what I can say is that um, much of my experiences in Ecuador, Bolivia, and Peru also had a spiritual dimension. Um, under different circumstances, I ended up exploring the Society of Friends, the Quakers, um, partly as a result of being involved with different women who were connected with those movements. Um, I, I looked into other sorts of uh, spiritual pursuits. I tried to practice meditation. I was exposed to ayahuasca from curanderos in the jungle. Um, but uh, I also, through a rather remarkable chain of circumstance that I describe in the book, came into contact with the Baha'i community. Um, at first, tangentially in Ecuador, actually, and, and I I can actually blame USAID for this on some level, uh, because uh, it was uh, the USAID mission in Quito that had asked me to take a group of uh, uh, Quechua-speaking uh, health promoters from one portion of Ecuador up to Otovalo to visit the Baha'i radio station there, Radio Baha'i in Otovalo, uh, which was developing a rather remarkable uh, social and education and economic development project uh, reaching across a large audience in uh, in Ecuador. At the time, I didn't know anything about the Baha'is, and the folks that were there really didn't tell me anything either about the, the faith, uh, but uh, I had a chance to see their work with the indigenous and the fact that they had developed this uh, kind of radio magazine show uh, that was in the traditional and indigenous languages of that portion of Ecuador, uh, and that had a tremendous audience appeal. Uh, and there were a large number of indigenous um, in Ecuador that were uh, beginning to take interest in the Baha'i community. Uh, when I went to Bolivia, through again a whole chain of circumstances, I found myself stuck uh, for different reasons in Sucre, the, the actual legal capital of the country. And uh, without getting too much of the details that I share in the book, I end up coming in contact again with the Baha'i community and meeting uh, this rather eclectic, diverse community of Bolivians, Americans, Germans, Persians, Haitians, Colombians, who were kind of creating uh, in Sucre this uh, remarkable community with uh, very progressive social teachings um, and a religious, spiritual message uh, bringing together all of the different world faiths uh, in a way that I found to be very appealing and certainly led me to then uh, chose, choose to study and read up on uh, more and more about the Baha'i faith. In fact, I got so engrossed in it, I began to uh, get involved uh, in my spare time trying to disprove the Baha'i faith, reading some 20 or 30 books in my spare time about the uh, Baha'i teachings, uh, what the Baha'is were about, the Baha'i history, because I couldn't believe that this was true. Um, and then as a result of some interesting adventures with an NBC TV crew that came down to the Chaco to film out of Phoenix, Arizona, uh, talking with them and showing them the Chaco and, and letting them film a bit of the work of the organization I was working with, Esperanza, uh, I ended up coming into a series of experiences that further cemented my own interest in terms of knowing more about the Baha'i faith until finally I chose to embrace the Baha'i faith and I've tried to follow it in my own way uh, uh, for better or worse and come to appreciate the fact that in fact uh, uh, 
um, once I became Baha'i, I discovered that quite a number of people working in the United Nations, working in different multinational organizations, were Baha'is or in some way connected with the Baha'is. And in fact, that the Baha'is had a, a remarkably unknown uh, history in terms of helping to promote uh, and push forward not only the United Nations back in 1945 at the time of the uh, the, the UN convention in San Francisco, but even uh, the uh, uh, prior League of Nations um, and President Wilson's 14 points, all of which actually have remarkable Baha'i connections and, and roots and some interesting coincidences. So it's been a, a real affirming thing for me in terms of having a, a spiritual basis of understanding. And certainly within the Baha'i teachings, it further deepened my own appreciation for the fundamental validity and connection between all of the world's revelations, be they Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, um, until its most recent manifestations uh, represented by the Baha'i faith. Each of the world religions, I came to realize, really shared a commonality, a similar message of teaching for us if we were receptive to hear it. Uh, in an example that one person offered me, it's the same light, it's just the lampshade that has changed to a certain extent over many, many thousands of years. No one is saying Christianity or the Christ does not have and did not have an important validity at that time. But there are other religious revelations that have all added to that picture. And the Baha'i faith, in terms of its vision of what the next thousand years might offer for humanity, bringing us to what the Baha'is call the lesser peace and the most great peace, really the unification of the planet and mankind. Maybe this sounds airy-fairy and crazy for many of our listeners, but I challenge people to go ahead and take a look at uh, Baha'i materials. Uh, they can go to the the website of the Baha'i community of the United States. Um, it's a fairly active community worldwide now of some six or seven million people. Um, and uh, the website is www.bahai.org, Baha'i.org. The World Center for the Baha'i Community is, in fact, in Israel, uh, in Haifa, along the slopes of Mount Carmel. And I've had the honor and ability to visit on pilgrimage and for other purposes a number of times over the last uh, 20, 25 years. Wow. I'll say this. Spirituality in all its forms, and I love the lampshade analogy. I'm going to use that if it's okay if I could borrow that in the sure. future. I love when I talk to different faiths and different backgrounds that it really is all the light it's the same light it's just how you how you categorize that light and what you uh, the ideas widespread are very much similar in those kind of things and i i appreciate you sharing that and it's it's great to have you today i want to ask you uh an ending question your distinguished career it it it, it goes through so many various aspects of our international relations and i just want to ask you if you were to summarize your career in one word which word would you pick and why? Illumination. <laughs> and I would say illumination because I've gone through periods of enlightenment. I've gone through many periods of darkness. Uh, I appreciate your kind comments about my career, but I've also shared some tremendous challenges and I've seen some terrible things uh, that have sometimes thrown me for a loop. But uh, I could hope that uh, certainly uh, an important current over the years has been that of increasing illumination and a desire to share illumination with others. Uh, it's behind my interest and enjoyment at coaching and teaching and now writing um, and trying to be able to encourage young people to step outside of the box, to step outside of their zone of comfort, to look for opportunities of service, because opportunities of service, be it on the community level, uh, be it on the national or international level, particularly service with people with whom you're unfamiliar with, 
people you are perhaps uncomfortable with at first is an important part of helping us to become fuller, uh, more mature human beings. I want to thank you for coming on today. And this has been an amazing interview. I just, I know that your, your story is going to really uh, impact our audience in a very positive way. Anything that we can do to get our audience to think internationally and globally, I think from our vantage point, from my vantage point is one of my goals for this show. I want us to look at things from a global paradigm. I believe that diplomacy is not dead post-Trump era and that we have tons of work to do still on this planet for one another. And in that respect, I, I just deeply thank you for coming on and sharing your experience and, and your sacrifice and your service over the years and thank being you. able to run with what you've done and just doing the significant impact. You've had a very impactful life. And I think that that's just something that's without saying, and, and it makes me very excited to be able to share your story with my audience and, and they get to know you on, on this level through our interview today. I want to thank you for that. It takes a lot of courage to create a memoir about your adventures and, and to be truthful and, and candid about the good, the bad, the ugly <laughs> about everything that you've done. Right. I mean, it's just, it, it goes without words. I'm, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> no, I'm honored and I look forward to, to getting to know you better as well. I hope we'll have other opportunities to chat again, uh, 100%. as well. And, uh, certainly, uh, I'll make sure that you're aware of any future updates in terms of uh, any further recounting of adventures. I appreciate it. And you, if you do any other additions to your memoir, because I see with from our interview today, that's just chapter one of your memoir, part one. I think there's more. I mean, just looking at all the various countries you've been to and all the experiences you've, you've encountered, I would have to think that you would do a compendium of <laughs> your memoir. Maybe maybe you want to do an audio book. <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's great. I just want to thank Alan Alonzo Wynn for coming on the show today. What an amazing story. What a remarkable story to have a retired senior foreign service officer here on the show and sharing all these experiences through his various countries between Peru, Nicaragua, Angola, Nigeria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and South Africa, to name a few, of course. I think when we look at these kind of topics, I love to have the audience take off the paradigm that we're centered so focused on America all the time, but it's beautiful when you can take those glasses off, those lenses off and look from a larger perspective to see that we are a member of the global community. And I think that's what Alan is an example of. His book is an example of the journey that he took when he literally went through all these adventures, Andean adventures, to do what he did to become everything that he's done. And I just think it's great to have those experiences to share with you today. Check out Alan's book, Andean Adventures. It's available uh, on Amazon and you can go to his website at enabledandnoble.net. That's E-N-A-B-L-E-E-N-N-O-B-L-E.net. Thank you so much uh, for having Alan on the show today. I want to encourage your audience to check out this information further. Go to his website, read his book, do whatever you can to make a difference in this world. And if you're interested in the Peace Corps, go do it. If you have a desire to be a foreign service officer, do it now. Don't put it off. Life's too short. Spiritually, there's so much we can do through our service to others in our community. And that's what I believe Alan represents for us today. Stay positive, because when you stay positive, anything is possible. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives 
one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. 